Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, that what Zach just said about you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I think that's something that's really important for us to grab a hold of right now because I think there's a lot of people that are waiting for the enemies to be gone to feel like it's time for the Lord to do what he wants to do. And the truth of the matter is, is the Lord enjoys in the middle of what the enemy's doing, having someone whose focus and whose mind is fixed on them, who are unafraid and actually uninfluenced by everything that's going on in the world. When the world is, is concerned and hiding and living in fear and response to their enemy, there's someone over there that's just eating. They're just sitting calmly at a table. And I think that, that if we're waiting for the enemy to be dealt with before we enjoy what the Lord wants to do in our lives, we will probably spend a lot of our lives not enjoying what we could right now. And we're actually letting the enemy set the agenda and set the timetable and saying, I am more influenced by that than I am by your promises. And so I can't sit with you right now because of what's going on over there. But God, if you will deal with that, then I will come. And, I, and the Lord's saying, listen, maybe you sitting with me is what deals with the enemy over there. Maybe you deciding that you're going to spend time with me right now and enjoy who I am and enjoy my presence is actually the thing that's necessary because the enemy, he's not the one who's setting the timetable or the agenda. God doesn't live in response to the enemy. He's not living in reaction to the enemy, and if he calls us to be like him, then we're not called to live in response and reaction to the enemy. We're to look for what is God doing right now, because we might be running to find a sword while the Lord is wanting us to grab a spoon. How do you know? Follow him. Be led by him. Give him your attention. Um, so good morning. I want to say good morning to our Ringe Church family. It's awesome to be able to be there with you, even though I'm not there with you physically. Um, it's, it's amazing that we can all gather together this morning. And um, so I'm, I'll see you guys soon when I come up in September. But, um, man, I would trade our weather for yours right now. Did you guys get that little false fall last week, you know? You woke up in the morning, it was a little bit chilly, I started playing Christmas music. And the harsh reality that is the South Carolina summer and transition came crashing down on me yesterday. And I was sitting outside and I'm like, why do I live somewhere where it feels like I'm in an oven? Like the fan didn't even feel good, it just felt like a convection oven. And, uh, but it's just about to be that time, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, so if you have your Bibles, open them up to, um, um, oh man, one second. For all that I love about technology, there are times when, all right, here we go. Okay, these little things pop up, and it won't let you do anything until you close them out. <laughs> I know, so smooth and polished. But anyways, open them up to Daniel chapter 1. And I'm going to read a portion, and then we're going to talk through it, because I feel like there's some really significant things in here 
um, for us, especially for right now where we are in the world. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, it says this. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the, in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And all the vegans said, Amen. So the guard took away their choice food, <laughs> like when, whenever they read where Paul says, one who has weak faith eats nothing but vegetables, they bring that verse up, you know, and it's like, touche. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive. I thank you that it comes like a sword and it divides what is from what isn't. That it, that it separates, God, the things that we've thought and the things that you say. God, that, that we would have a clearer understanding of who you are and who you've called us to be. Every time we open your word, God, that it opens us. That, that we don't just come to a book, Father, we come to know you. That we don't just come to memorize a line, we come to meet the one who created us and see his intention for us, to learn his heart for us and to become transformed by what we read. God, I pray that we would never read your word and it not change us. I pray that we would never read your word and try to change it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the king takes the best and the brightest. He looks at them and he says, these are people who are smart. These are people who are handsome. These are people who are intelligent. He finds a bunch of people like me and he says, I'm going to bring them into my service. 
you can say it about you when you're up here. Uh, he finds it, no, but he finds a bunch of bright and intelligent and, and physically, you know, uh, uh, attributed young men, and he brings them into his service, and he, he, he says, I'm going to bring them and make them part of my royal court. I'm going to take them out of the captivity that they've been brought into. I'm going to take them out of the life of slavery and, 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 and harshness that they've been brought into now that we have conquered them, and I'm going to bring them into my royal court, and I'm going to have them spend time with me and with my leaders, and they're going to learn our language. They're going to learn our culture. I'm going to conform them into the image that I want them to fit. And he's not doing this because he's kind. He's not doing this because he's, he's good-hearted, because he has such love for them. It's not that he looked out and said, wow, those, they, they are amazing, and I really love them, and I would love to do something nice for them. No, these are the original influencers. Like, like right now, there are people in the world that, that have an uh, audience, that have the attention of people, that stand out in the minds of people, and companies will give them free products, companies will let them stay at their hotels, companies will let them eat at their restaurants, all in hopes that they will then influence the people that follow them who are not receiving it for free to want what they have. And, and this has been going on for a long time. There's always been a battle to try to conform or transform going on in the earth. And so they, he brings them in and he decides, you know what, if I can get these young men who are leaders, who are people that their peers look up to, who are intelligent, who are the, the kind of the cream of the crop of this society that I have just conquered, if I can get them to buy into my system, if I can teach them my traditions and my customs, if I can teach them our language, if I can feed them our food, what's he thinking? He's thinking, listen, I don't want them eating the meager slop that everybody else is having to eat. I want to give them the best food so that they look the best, so that when people look at them, they say, this is what happens when you buy into the system of Babylon. I want them to be an example that people look to and say, I want this system. I want to, to, to learn these customs and these traditions. I want to eat this food. I want to drink this wine. I want to become a Babylonian because look at what happens to people when they buy into this system that we've been brought into. This is amazing. And he thinks that if he can conform them into the image that he wants to conform them to, the rest of the people will follow. And so he brings them in, but the, one of the very first things he does is he says, I have to change their names. Th these names won't do. Because when people look at them and say their name, I don't want them to attribute what they see in their life to what's contained in their name. I don't want them to look up and see Daniel and see the position that he's been given and see the physical fitness that he lives in, and see the, the position of power and the knowledge and all that he has. I don't want them to look at him and say the name of God. I don't want them to look at him and say, the one who God protects. So instead, I'm going to change his name, and I'm going to take his name, and I'm going to insert one of our God's names into his name so that every time they look at Daniel, they don't say Yahweh or El, who is the God of Israel. They say Baal, who is a God of Babylon. Because I don't want what is happening in his life to be attributed to the God of Israel. 
I don't want him getting the credit. I don't want him getting the influence. I don't want them even thinking about that God because if they do, then the way that they think won't allow them to be changed. So if they look at Daniel and they attribute what's happening in his life to one of our gods, they will be much more likely then to subject themselves to that God. And he takes the, the, the boys, the three boys that were with him, and, and these are, they're all from Judah, from the tribe of Judah. He selected Daniel and the ones that would become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he takes Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whose name means God is gracious. Who is what God is? In other words, who is like God? Not who is like a God, though. Who is like El? Who is like the God? Like when they're standing in front of people and people say their name, they're reminding themselves that there is no one like their God. And he says that this, this will never do. I can't have that. I cannot have glory and, and honor and influence going to that God because if they serve that God, they'll never serve me. And more than anything, I want to be served. I, I don't care what God they serve as long as it's a God that I told them to serve because ultimately I want the control, I want the influence, and they can give their lives to anything that I put in front of them, but I don't want them giving their lives to someone who maybe has greater authority than me. So he takes the three, his names mean God is gracious, who is what God is, and God has helped, and changes them to command of the moon God. Who is what Aku is? One of their gods. And servant of Nebu, another one of their gods, who was historically thought to be the favorite god of Nebuchadnezzar. The Nebu in his name comes from that god. He intentionally changes their names. And it's not just a tradition thing. It's because he wants to change their identity, he wants to change who they are, and he wants to change what people think when they see them. And here's the thing, is that while he could change their name, he didn't have the power to change who they were. There was only one who had the power to let the change of their name change who they were. And that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, it doesn't matter what the world calls you. It doesn't matter what the system of this world, the label that it puts on you. None of that stuff matters. People can say what they want about you. The world can say what it wants about you. The only time that that actually matters is when you give your agreement to it and you actually begin to live in the influence of the name that's been given to you. No, you're not a failure until you believe that you're a failure. It doesn't matter what people say about you. People could say, well, you're a failure. That doesn't have anything to do with who you are. That has nothing to do with who you are. That's a person's opinion of you, and it means zero. But the second that you start to come into agreement with it and let what's said about you change the way you think about and see yourself, oh, now it has a ton of power. Now it has a ton of influence, and now you will start to live in the influence of the name that you've taken because you've allowed what people have said about you to influence you more than what God has said about you. 
And so, like, like, there was no power in that name change until they actually came into agreement with it. You know, the truth of the matter is it works the other way, too. Like, when you got born again, you got a new name, which was the first name that were given to followers of Jesus, which was Christian. What You were called many things by the Bible. The Bible says you are holy. That is what you are. The Bible says pure, undefiled, above reproach. All these names are, are, are given to you. The Word speaks so many things about you. But the truth is it has no authority or power to change your life. Until you actually agree with it, until you believe that what is said about you is actually true, and then you begin to live that way. Like, I can sit here and tell you that you are holy and set apart, but if you don't actually believe that, you'll continue to live in a way that's contrary to what the Word of God says, and then what you, the way that you live will become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and you'll point to the way that you live as proof that what God's Word says isn't actually true. And the whole time, it's just you perpetuating a lie over yourself. Well, if I'm holy, then how come? Well, probably because you have an if before the holy. Well, if I'm set apart, probably because you have an if before the set apart, rather than saying, no, I am set apart. And so if I am set apart, then what does it look like to live as though I'm set apart? I believe what he says about me, and the rest of my life is now discovering what does it mean to look like to live in the influence of what he said about me. See, God changed people's names too. The difference is when the enemy changed people's names, it was always to try to defile them. When God changed people's names, it was always because he saw potential and believed in who they were going to become. So he takes Abram, which means exalted father, makes him Abraham, the father of many nations. He takes Jacob, which means supplanter, deceiver, and he makes him Israel, which means the Lord will prevail. Like, in the moment when he says it, it's not always something that people see or can understand. In fact, he walks up to Gideon. We just talked about this recently. Gideon's hiding in a wine press, threshing out wheat, doing the, the, the right thing in the wrong place, hiding because the enemy has completely stolen his boldness. I'm telling there is an attack against the body of Christ right now to try to steal the boldness that we live with. And it's trying to force you, if it can't get you to do the wrong thing, it'll get you to do the right thing in a quiet, hidden way. And it's like, oh, I'm just going to be down here, and I'm just going to do this, because if I pop my head up above the ground, the last time I did, everything got stolen from me. And the enemy has stolen, the enemy has come and, and destroyed, and I believe it's intentional to get the people of God to go underground and hide down in a wine press and say, you know what, I can't stop doing the right thing, but I'm going to stop doing it in a way that anybody can see. I'm not going to change what I believe, but I'm going to stop doing it in a way that could change what others believe. Because as long as I just have enough for me and mine. You're, you're, he's down in a wine press. That's not a place that's designed for threshing wheat. It makes it very inefficient. inefficient. In fact, it's the, the worst place to thresh wheat because it would be the most still, calm, quiet place. So when you throw the wheat up into the air, the chaff would fall back down with the wheat and maybe just a little bit of the chaff would go away. And you'd have to sort through and do it over and over and over and over again, making it inefficient and making sure that all you get maybe is just enough for you and maybe enough for your family, but certainly not enough for the others around you. Because the last time I did it publicly, the enemy came. And so I'm, I'm not going to do it up on top of the hill where the wind blows, where it just takes one toss for the chaff to be blown away. 
and the berries to fall to the ground. I'm not going to do it in a way that makes it to where I can actually thresh enough wheat, not just for me, but for other people around me who maybe are starving. I'm not going to do it that way anymore because the last time I did that, the last time I stepped out in faith, the last time I said I believe, the last time I took a stand, the last time, the last time, the last time, the enemy, and all of a sudden he's setting the agenda and we're living in reaction to what he did or what he said or in fear of what will happen if we do it again. The last time I did that, people rejected me. You know what? It's okay. In fact, I'm not saying do things purposely to be rejected, but I'm saying if you're doing things purposely to not be rejected, you're wrong. Because Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. What's he saying? The only way that you're ever going to have people not speak badly about you is to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. The false prophet said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Abundance, abundance, when there was no abundance. Rain, when there was no rain. They told the people what they wanted to hear, which made the people feel good in a moment. It feels good for somebody to tell you what you want to hear, for someone to say, we're coming into a season of abundance, and you go home and go, yeah, we're coming into a season of abundance, only to walk through a season of lack. How did that word help you? If you thought you were coming into a season of abundance, you probably didn't prepare for a time of lack. So when the time of lack came, you felt good for a moment. But when the test came, you weren't ready for it because the word made you feel good in the moment. But it was what you wanted, not what you needed. And so God comes to Gideon. This is Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Why? Because Gideon is going to become a mighty man of valor. But before Gideon can become a mighty man of valor, he has to hear the Lord say that's who he is. And before he can actually be- become that, he has to believe that what God said about me is greater than what I feel and is greater than what other people have said about me. And so he comes to Gideon and he calls him by the name that Gideon is going to need to believe to become who God called him to become. And I just had this check in me when I was preparing this message of like, we need to really be careful about the names that we assign to people. That we're not assigning names based on what we see and what we hear in the natural, but we're speaking to people out of what we've seen and what we've heard from the heart of God. That we're not assigning names and labels to people based on natural, on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. So you might look at them right now and say they're this, but rather than calling them that and confirming the dysfunction in their life and maybe being another voice that's labeling them, that's getting them to live that way, ask the Father, God, what do you say about them? God, I know the world says this about them, and I could say that so easily. It doesn't even take believing in God to be able to label somebody with natural terms using natural eyes and natural language. But I'm not supposed to be of this world. I'm not merely human anymore. I have the Spirit of God living inside of me. And if you wouldn't say this to them, why would I say that to them? I'm either going to confirm your voice or the voice of the enemy. I'm not going to confirm the voice of the enemy over their life like everybody else is because that's going to continue to produce the fruit of what that label has produced already. So God... God, who do you say that they are? What do you say to them? What would you say? God, if you were standing before this person right now, looking them in the eyes, what would you say to them? We're we really, I, I'm not even going to project it on you. I'm very quick to say things at times in response to what I see in here. And, and even this morning driving here, I was repenting for that and saying, God, I don't want to just speak out of what I see and what I hear in the natural. I have to hear what you're saying because somebody's got to be the voice of truth, not the voice of confirmation of the lie. And so he, he 
brings them in. I remember Jesus. He looks at Simon the shaky reed and says, I, I say you're Peter. Jesus knows at that time that down the road, the rock is going to shake like a reed again. The one who just said, you're the Christ, the son of the most high God. Jesus looks at him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for I say that, you did not, that, that this is not revealed to you by man, but this came from the heart of God. And I'm telling you, your name is Peter. And yet, a few months later, the rock looks at a little girl who says, didn't you used to hang out with Jesus? I never even knew him. Spend time with him? I never even knew who he was. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're one of them men. He like curses. He says it so vehemently and so angrily. I never knew the man. No, you, no, I, I, you, I saw you. You were with that, the, the, this one called Jesus. And, and this time he denies him. And when they don't believe his denial, he flees and runs away. And yet Jesus looked at him and said, you're a rock. You're solid. And the amazing thing about that is, is once Jesus has decided that's who Peter is, that's who Peter is. All that's left now is for Peter to decide that's who Peter is. Because when he sees him, he doesn't call him a shaky reed. He doesn't change his mind and revert and say, well, I know I said this about you, but I guess now that you've proven this. And that's what we'll do sometimes. We have no problem believing the best about somebody, but all of a sudden we see something happen in their life. We see them walk through a season where they don't look like the thing that we thought about them. And so we change our minds about them rather than asking God, God, I felt like you told me this is who they are. Have you changed your mind? Promise he's going to say no. So what happened? Maybe they changed theirs. Maybe they need you to be someone who speaks truth to bring their mind back into alignment with what God said rather than someone who condemns them and keeps their mind in alignment with the mistake and the lie of the enemy. He doesn't say, go tell my brothers and that shaky little reed. I'm, look, I'm just being serious. Like, put yourselves in that position. If, if you watched it, if you saw Peter deny you three times after he swore to you that he would give his life for you, would you still call him the rock? Or would you maybe revert back to the shaky reed? He says, go tell my brothers and the rock that I'm coming to see them. What's he saying? Go let Peter know I haven't changed my mind. So please don't change yours. And so he brings them in, and, and he, he changes their names. And now he says, I want to give them the best food, the best wine. I want to give them what I consider to be the best. And part of the reason that he, he wanted to change their names, and part of the reason he wanted them to learn his customs and his language, is he wants to pour new wine into them. 
But he realizes, I can't pour new wine into the old wineskin. If I'm going to pour new wine into them, I have to make them a new wineskin that can contain it. And, and I was, I was, as I was preparing for this and, and praying through this word, I felt like the Lord said, we always look at old wine into new wineskins as though it's, or new wine into new wineskins as though it's a good thing. But there's times, honestly, where the old wineskin is still the wineskin that God wants, and the old wine is still the wine that God wants. And the only way that we can actually make place for new wine is to destroy the old wineskin to try to make, and I, I feel like, I'm, and again, I don't say any of this out of like condemnation or, or anger or anything like that. I say it out of love, but I feel like the church is being tempted to become a new wineskin that could contain new wine that's coming in. Like things that were once black and white, just right and wrong. Now all of a sudden it's like, well, who are we to speak to that? Do you know who we are to speak to that? We're people who have the spoken word of God. Like, well, it's not my position to judge. I'm not here judging you. I'm telling you what the judge said. Well, only God can judge me. I know, and that's why I only dare to use the judgment of God to tell you what the word of God says. And I'm telling you, I just felt this thing of like the world is trying to pour new wine into the church to try to change the church and influence the church so that the church becomes diluted. See, when you pour new wine into an old wineskin, it dilutes what was there already. And the more gets poured in, the less it looks like the old wine, the less it tastes like the old wine, the less it smells like the old wine, and the more it begins to taste and smell and look like the new wine. But the only way that that new wine can actually come into an old, a, a wineskin is for the wineskin to change. And sometimes... New wine isn't meant to be in our wineskin. Because Jesus said if new wine's poured into an old wineskin, it will destroy it. Like, you're not meant to constantly be being poured into by the culture and the world around you. You're not meant to have what you believe constantly being influenced by new wine when we have old wine that God himself poured into a wineskin, a wineskin that he created. And I just think there's something to this right now of it might look good, it might sound good. Listen, it probably sounded really good to most people that heard it when they heard they're going to get the best food and the best wine that the king gives to his royal court when everybody else is getting just slop, when everybody else is barely getting enough, when everybody else is being fed whatever was fit for slaves and servants. It probably sounded good, but Daniel hears this and goes, God has already told me what I'm supposed to put in. I can't allow myself to be defiled, even if it's what the world considers to be the best. And so it says this, and th this was the point that I actually started to preach on, and the rest of the stuff just kind of came.
But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel made a decision and said, I'm not going to do that. He resolved, which means he settled in his heart. I don't care what everybody else does. I don't care how good it sounds. And I don't care what it cost me. I'm not going to allow that in and defile me. And notice he says this before he even makes the request to the guard about what food he would rather have. And as I was praying through this and just chewing on this, this, that one line, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself, kept just ringing in my ears. Now I was thinking, how many times in life do we make a resolution after we make a request and see if it's possible? So I know I shouldn't defile myself, Lord. I know what you've said I'm supposed to eat. I know what you've said I'm supposed to drink. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, is if I don't say yes to this, they, it could cost me. It could cost me position. It could cost me favor. It could cost me my family. It could even cost me my life. So, God, if you really don't want me to, give me favor. And as I was thinking about that, I felt like the Lord said so many times the favor is on the other side of a decision that we make rather than the other way around. So many times what moves the heart of God to actually act and, and, and give favor, because it says, and God had granted favor to the guard, and so the guard did what they wanted. But listen, look when that comes sequentially. It says this, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked. So he makes a decision that says, you know what, I'm not doing this. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what the answer is that I get from him. I'm not going to defile myself because if I do that, then I'm no better than the people who have taken us captive and everything that is special about me and everything that sets me apart and everything that is precious is going to be absolutely just withered away and it will be... It will be compromised, and I will be no good to anybody because I will allow things in that I know the Lord has asked me not to allow in, and there's more riding on this than just my life, and so I don't care if I have to starve to death or if they put me to death for disobeying the king. I'm not going to take something in that God has already told me I'm not supposed to. So now I'm going to go and ask the guard. He didn't say, well, God, if, if you don't want me to defile my body, then change the food. Like, God could do it, right? God could take the food that they gave. He could take the royal food, the royal wine. He could take those things and instantly make them become vegetables and water or they put them into their mouth. He took water, poured it out, and it became wine. Why couldn't he take water, wine, pour it out, and it become water? Well, he could do that. And maybe he would have had they refused. But Daniel doesn't settle into, well, God, if you don't want me to, then you have to do something. No, he decides, God, you've already done enough. My decision's made. My mind is made up. I'm not going to defile myself. He doesn't say, God, if you want me to not do this, then you have to show us favor. 
So I'm going to go ask, and if they say yes, then I'll know it's you. No, I already know it's you because I already know what you've said. I don't need a new word, and I don't need a new miracle to confirm the old word that you've already given me. You haven't changed, so neither can I. I don't need you to do something supernatural for me to believe that what you've already said is what you want for my life. I'm not putting you to the test. I believe you. And I believe that, that you know me and you love me and you have my best and you have the people I have influence over is best in mind. And if this is what you've called me to, then this is where I'm staying. And it doesn't matter what the consequence is. Look what happens. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. When? Now. After Daniel makes a decision. After Daniel decides. Now God causes them to have compassion and show favor. And there's so many things I feel like in the Christian life that we see God move, we see things come into line. Looking back, it looks like it was an easy decision sometimes because we never felt the consequence of the decision because God moved. So to Daniel, this look, to, to anyone watching, this looks like a, a simple decision. It looks like, well, you know, Daniel asked the guard, and the guard said, okay, and I'll, I'll give you the food that you want for 10 days, and then we'll do a test, and then we'll compare you, and we'll see. Like, for everybody outside watching, this seems like a very simple thing. And looking back on it, it could feel like a simple thing. But in that moment, I promise you, it was not a simple thing because Daniel had to recognize this decision could cost me my life before the favor came, before the compassion came. And it says once Daniel made that decision, now God. And here's the thing that I found amazing about this, and I know it's true, and I know it's still true. Look down at the bottom of that portion that we read. It says, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were to drink, they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. One man's decision to not defile himself leads to other people not even being given the choice to defile themselves and having to make that stand because one man decided, I'm not going to do it. It led to others not even having to face that decision and not defiling themselves. And I, I, like I was talking about earlier, of, of the enemy trying to destroy the boldness. Like, I feel it in the room this morning. If I'm just being honest, and I don't mean that condemningly. I mean that in the best, most challenging, convicting way that I can. I feel it in the room. Like, I feel like there's things that we're supposed to have made solid decisions and choices not to defile ourselves with, that people have allowed some old some new wine to get poured in, thinking, well, a little bit of new wine won't destroy the wineskin. And the truth of the matter is, is a little bit of wine may not, but we're not called to see how much new wine we can pour into the old wineskin without it exploding, because once it explodes, it's too late. 
And the enemy wants to come after your boldness. And I feel like one of the ways he does that is by presenting things to you. And rather than you making a choice and saying, you know what, I don't care what this costs me. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what people say about me. I don't care what, what even my family thinks about me. I don't care about anything other than this. I already know what God has said. And to do anything other than that would be to allow something in that defiles me. And I can't do that. So I'm going to pray that God changes things. But I'm not going to make my decision based on waiting for him to change things. I'm going to decide and then I'm going to trust him. And I feel like the things that defile us are, are strategically sent by the enemy to shut your mouth so that you won't have a boldness, so that you won't be able to speak into things, so that you won't feel the courage and the conviction, so that you won't have the clarity and the passion, so that you'll feel condemned rather than feeling like you have something that can convict and challenge. Like, I, I just feel like, I feel it so much that, like, there's these things that are being presented by the world that are supposedly going to help. Like, like I'm not even talking about total sin. Like, like obviously, you know, if, if it's sin, you already know better than that. But I'm saying, like, there's so many voices that we're listening to. What is our diet? Like, what are we allowing in? Like, not just in, in, in the food that we eat and what we drink, but I'm talking about, like, the voices that we're constantly listening to that are speaking into our lives. Is it leading us to thoughts that are pure, excellent, lovely? Or is it causing us to live angry and bitter, making enemies of groups of people and putting labels on people? Come on, I'm telling you, like that political spirit, Jesus warned about that. He said, you beware of the, of the, of the yeast of, of Herod and of the Pharisees. What is he saying? He's saying you watch out for religious legalism and you watch out for the political system of this world because both of them, if they get involved, will like a yeast, they'll spread and contaminate things. Don't look at me with that tone of voice. Maybe it'll cost you your favorite talk show. I don't know. Why don't you ask yourself, what's the fruit? Is it causing me to look more like Jesus? And is it leading me to peace and to joy? Or is it causing me to become angry and bitter and to see other people as the enemy rather than taking my attention off of people and putting it on the real enemy? I think I've said enough. But here's the thing. It doesn't say that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made the decision not to defile themselves. It says one man said, he resolved, I won't defile myself. I will not let that which God does not intend to be inside of me, be inside of me. And I believe his resolution gave courage and conviction to those three to say, Daniel's not going to do it. I'm not going to do it either. What if Daniel doesn't? What if he just decides, you know what? It's easier to just go along with this. That food actually looks pretty good. I'm sure the wine is amazing. And honestly, like, I've heard about the Babylonian kings. Like, if you disobey one of their decrees, like, they chop your head off. I'm probably better off to my people, alive than dead. Like all these voices start to speak and reason. Like if I make this decision and it costs me my life, then what good is that decision? Because 
then I'm dead and gone, so I probably should just go along with this, but I won't change. I'll just kind of go along, and I'll just be like everybody else, because that way there, then I'll be still there, and I can then be an influence. And it's like, man, the minute you let things defile you, you lose your ability to influence anyway, so what good was it? Well, I'm just going to like act like everybody else, and I'm going to kind of be undercover. That's not what Paul was talking about when he said, to the Greek, I became a Greek, to the Jew, a Jew, all things to all people for the sake of the elect. He didn't say I joined them in their sins so that they would accept me so that I could be like, surprise gospel. No, what did he say? He said, I figured out a way to reach them. I spoke their language to the extent that I could speak the gospel in a way that they would understand it. I didn't violate their customs but I didn't allow their customs to violate me either so that I wouldn't offend their heart before I had their ear. And I, I just, I honestly believe that we are walking in a time right now, like I've never seen it before. I have never, I am daily surprised at the things that I hear being called right and wrong. I'm like, it's, it's almost as if there's someone who's reading the word and point by point is going through and trying to pervert and switch what used to be called bad and make it good. And it's happening in the church. Like we're starting to say, well, that's a matter of personal conviction. No, it's not. It's a matter of biblical conviction. And if the, if the black and white truth is written on the word of God, like there's nothing for me to have to interpret about that. It's like God said, avoid that and flee from it. So why would I to give someone permission to, well, maybe for you, you don't have to avoid it and flee from it. Maybe for you, that's actually right. You know what? You can't really help it because you were born that way. Or you can't really help it because of the culture you come from. Or you can't really help it because of the upbringing you have. And we start making excuses for things and it's like man the truth of the matter is is I'm not being judgmental when I say that's wrong I'm agreeing with the one who is the judge you hear that all the time only God can judge me it's like yes and the truth of the matter is is only God will judge you and me making you feel better by perverting what he said in his word isn't going to stand with you on that day so the best that I can do now is tell you what he's already said so that when you stand before him, you know what you're going to hear. One way or the other. I don't ever want someone that I have influence over to be surprised when they stand before the Lord and hear what he has to say. I want to let them know what he's already said so that when they stand before him, they know full well what's going to come from his mouth. And they chose and they've made a decision. And I, 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 I just know that right now, there's so much pressure to be conformed, to learn the traditions and the customs of Babylon, to take on the language of the culture around us, to let some new wine come in when we were already filled to overflowing with old. You realize that like, like the only room that we have inside of us is room that the Spirit of God makes. If you're full, there's nothing left he wants to pour in. If you need to be poured into, he'll make room for it. So I just, I want our, our, just the whole church family, I was going to ask, but I think everyone needs it. I do. We all do. If everyone would just stand real quick. I just want to pray over us. Because how do you know you're not Daniel? Like, like really, like how do you not know 
that there might be some other people around you that your decision actually saves them from having to make that decision because they live in the fruit of your obedience. How do you know that you saying, you know what, I know that, the, that my mother before me and her mother before her and her mother before her all walk down this path, but I'm going to make a decision right now. I'm not going to let that happen in my life. And I'm not going to sit back and say, well, God, if you don't want that to happen, would you change something? I'm going to decide that even if he doesn't change anything, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to allow that in. I don't care what my father or his father before him or his father before him. I don't care what they did. I don't care about the decisions that they made that weren't godly. It is not going to continue on to the ones that are coming after me because it's going to end with me. Because I'm not going to be defiled. I'm not going to allow that which God has already told me is not supposed to be in my life a place in my life. And how do you not know that that one decision doesn't lead to a bunch of people not having to make that decision because you choosing to not be defiled removes the ability for them to be defiled in that moment? Well, I don't, that, how does it work like that? Everybody, I don't know, but it's in the Word. It says, now when he saw these four, it took away their, the fruit and, uh, or the, the meat and the wine from the others. Why? They probably don't even know. What if he never told them, you know why we're giving you vegetables and water and not making you violate your conscience anymore is because there were four men who decided that they wouldn't defile themselves and they actually are healthier than you guys. What if they never knew why? They just all of a sudden, something that used to be a constant thing in their life was now removed and they never had to deal with it again. And they didn't know why. And it was because one person made a decision and said, I'm not going to, never again. I don't know what that is, Maybe it's nothing. Maybe you've stood against everything you're supposed to stand against. That's amazing. Keep standing. Maybe there's something coming, and this is encouragement, so that when it does, you won't be tempted to say, well, God, if you don't want me to, and try to force God to do something to prove what he's already spoke is still true. And you'll just say, no. I've resolved within myself. And I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it costs me. I can't allow it in because it's not just me that's depending on it. I've got a family. I've got friends. I've got influence. I've got a job. I've got a school. I've got a network of people around me. I've got people that are watching my life. I have people that I haven't even met yet that may one day live in the fruit of the decision that I'm making today because of the authority and the anointing that I'll carry on that day when I meet them. And I'll have what I need when I walk into that situation because today I'm deciding no more. I will not let it. On the other side of that decision, God does what only God can do and makes it possible. It's still that way. You can't white knuckle something. You can't just say, no, I'm not gonna, no, I'm not gonna, no, I'm not gonna. No, but you deciding, no, I'm not going to. And then yielding yourself to the Lord, God then comes and does what only God could do. Only God could change the heart of the guard to give them favor. And guess what? If you need something to be changed by God in order to keep your yes, he will make sure that it's changed, but he's not going to change it so that you'll, he'll have your yes. He wants your yes, and then he'll move. Stop sitting back and waiting and saying, well, if God doesn't want me to, then he has to. No, God doesn't want you to because he told you. What if he's looking for you to actually decide to take him at his word for him then to move and do what only he can do? And suddenly things change. 
So Father, I'm just asking right now for godly boldness to return where maybe it's been lacking, God, or for godly boldness to build where it's been already there, for godly boldness to come where it hasn't been. God, that, that, that we would be people who live in a way that we resolve within ourselves. I will not be defiled. I will not take what the world is offering if it would cost me my relationship with you, if it would cost me my influence that you've given me, if it would cost me the anointing that you've placed in my life. God, I need your anointing in my life, and I need it so that it can be available to break the chains that are on other people's lives because you called us us to push back the dark you said we are the light of the world what good would it be for us to sit around and talk about how dark it is outside when we're called to be the light and the only way that there's a lack of light is by light being dimmed you cannot turn up darkness but you can turn down the light and every time we compromise the light gets a little bit dimmer but every time we say no and we resolve and settle within ourselves I'm not going to live that way I don't care what it costs me. The light shines a little bit brighter. And all of a sudden, three young men step into a decision that they didn't even have to make because someone made a decision before them. And God, I'm specifically asking for fathers and mothers right now to be those people that would say, I don't care what my friends are doing. I don't care what the popular opinion is. I don't care if it makes me get made fun of. I don't care if it makes me the laughing stock of my workplace or my school or my gym or wherever it is. I don't care what it cost me. God, if it came down to costing me my life, to know you is better than life itself. And God, I'm deciding and resolving within myself right now. I will not be defiled by allowing something you've called unholy to take up residence in a place that you've called holy. I don't want new wine unless you're preserving it. That was a word I felt like the Lord said. It's like, on one hand, you have an evil king offering wine. On another hand, you have Jesus turning water into wine. How do you know the wine that you're supposed to drink? His disciples were there with him. They drank the wine, the wine at the party. How do you know you're supposed to drink the wine that's being offered? Here's how you know that I get to this place by following Jesus. If I didn't get here by following Jesus, I'm not taking what's being offered. So, Father, I'm just thanking you right now for what you're doing. I'm thanking you, God, that things are being resolved within us right now. God, I believe it. I know it. Your word will always accomplish that which you sent it forth to accomplish. It will not return to you void. So, Father, now I'm asking for every decision, every resolve that is made now and is made in the days ahead. God, that you would then honor and act and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.